James chapter number 1. Let's begin reading in verse number 17. James chapter number 1, verse number 17. The Word of God says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Of His own will begat He us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of His creatures. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. But be ye doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for letting us be here in your house, Lord. Thank you for the local church, the the fellowship of believers that we have in this place. Let us not take for granted or take lightly what a privilege it is to be able to be here tonight. Now, as we approach your word, help us, Father, to approach it with the right spirit. There's not a single one of us here tonight that doesn't need to hear from you. Lord, we need your truth. We need your wisdom. We need the Spirit of God to speak to us where we're at and what we're dealing with, Lord. And we know that you are equipped and you are interested in doing that very thing in our life. So help us to do our part by having our heart open to the truth of the Word of God. Lord, let us not be puffed up in pride. Let us not be blinded by hubris, Lord. But let us instead just come to you recognizing and confessing our need to hear from you, our need for your truth, for your Word. And Lord, we know if we do that, that you'll speak to our hearts. And we'll give you the glory for it, Lord, for all the glory will be due unto you. Father, we love you and we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to preach to you tonight on this thought, a passing glance or a persistent gaze. The text that we've read this evening, it it, uh, it leads to a place of dealing with our relationship with the Word of God. And of course, that, that's where we're going to get. It's what I want to preach to you about. But I wanted to start a little earlier than that in our text. One of the things that's always struck me in the Bible is when you see the word wherefore. Uh, one preacher said it this way, you ought to pay attention to the wherefores because the wherefores are there for a reason. In other words, it is a connecting word and it shows a building of thoughts. And that's what we find in our text. Certainly it wouldn't hurt us to go all the way back to verse number 1 and, and begin there, but for time's sake we'll begin at verse 17 because it sort of begins almost a new uh, series of thoughts. He's been talking about the danger of sin. He's been talking about how we handle temptation in our life. And he says in verse 16, do not err, my beloved brethren. And in verse 17, he gives us three things, three thoughts that preface this portion of the word of God that deals with the law of liberty. You know, I think great harm is done when we don't look at the context of the word of God. It enriches, it informs what we're studying, what we're reading. And so you've heard it, and I'm going to preach on it here in a little bit about the word of God and the law of liberty. But before we even get to that, What three things should inform and energize a right attitude and disposition towards the Word of God? I'll tell you this, if we don't have a right attitude to the Bible, the Bible won't help us a bit. 
If we as Christians don't approach the Word of God with the right spirit, with the right disposition, with the right perspective, we can read this book, we can read it through once a year, twice a year, ten times a year, and not get a lick of help from it if we're not approaching it with the right perspective. So why is it that we ought to have such a dedicated, devoted attitude towards the Word of God? Three thoughts are given before we preach our message. I want you to notice them with me. Verse 17 says this, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights. That's a name and a title for God the Father, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Let me say number one tonight. The reason we ought to take seriously the Word of God is because of how blessed we are by our Heavenly Father. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, recognizing that this is His book, it's His Word, and that every good thing we have in our life has come from Him. And He has bestowed it to us, not conditionally, but rather out of His grace and out of His mercy. Now that's not to suggest that there not are, are not some conditional uh, consequences of the way that we live our life and behave and act. But it is to say that if we were getting what we deserve, we'd be in hell with our neck broke. Amen? If we were getting what we deserve, we wouldn't get a thing. And so God in His infinite mercy and grace and in His faithfulness has blessed us, but He has not dangled a carrot out in front of us of blessings and said, if you'll jump high enough or if you'll go far enough, well, then you can have a blessing in your life. No, He's already proved to us that He loves us and desires to bless and favor our lives. And the Bible says here in verse 17, there's no variableness. You know what that means? That means variety, varying. In other words, He don't just wake up on the wrong side of the bed. He is a faithful God. Uh, His uh, nature and His character does not change. And it says this, neither shadow of turning. Now what does that mean? It means who He has always been, He still is, and we do not need to fear that He will be anything different tomorrow. There is no hint, there is no shadow, there is no danger, there is no risk of Him changing. In light of that fact, shouldn't that make us want to do everything we can to try to please Him? The fact that He's been so good to us in our life, If we had no other reason, that should be enough for us to say that this blessed book should be precious to us and we ought to desire to follow it, learn it, read it, study it, engraft it, and obey it in every way. I'd say number one, because of how blessed we are by the Father. And then look at verse 18. It says, Of His own will begat He us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of His creatures. Now, when we use the term first fruits in the Word of God, that is a phrase that is pregnant with meaning. And you'll find it very often used to speak of the resurrection of believers, how that Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection, and then uh, those that are the Lord's uh, at His coming, and then at the end, when all things are delivered up, He'll, he'll resurrect. And, but here in the context, James is using it in a lot more practical perspective. And what he's saying is this. You've got to remember uh, that Jesus Christ isn't a part of creation. He is the creator. But what it's saying here is that inasmuch as God desires to remake all of creation, and He will one day, thank the Lord for that, that you and I are the first fruits of that. This new birth, this new life that has been produced in us as believers is but a foretaste of what God desires to do in one day cleansing earth from the stain of sin and creating things afresh and anew. You say, preacher, what does that have to do with our text? Well, I'd say this, because of how we're blessed by the Father, but number two, because of how, of how we are called to be the first fruits. You say, what do you mean? Well, we, our life, our very testimony, our very life is to be a testament 
to the power of His Word to transform and to change things. Our life is to be an expression of this book. And it ought to be that when people look at our lives, they see in it an example of the transformative power of the gospel of Jesus Christ to give new life where once only deadness was. So we have a responsibility, in other words. We need the Bible because we are a a, a fit vessel to express the truths of this Bible, and therefore we ought to be following it and obeying it. And then look at verses 19 and 20. He says, wherefore, so in light of these things, in light of how good God's been to us, in light of the fact that we are called to be an example of the power of the word of truth and the life of God, he says, wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Now, if when we read that you feel like the Holy Ghost has been reading your mail, don't feel bad. I feel that way too. Because he speaks to what is the natural disposition of fallen man. And I'd say this, we need to read carefully, obey carefully, study and learn carefully the Word of God because of how blessed we are by our Father, because of how we're called to be the first fruits, but also because of how we are cursed by the flesh. The flesh that uh, lives in you and in me, that which is our old nature, uh, is not redeemed, it is not sanctified, it is not separated, it is not consecrated, it is as rotten and as wicked as it ever has been. This flesh is not going to be redeemed. Instead, He's going to transform us one day, uh, give us a new body like unto His glorious body. Uh, but this flesh is still as rotten as ever it has been. And the Holy Ghost, in recognizing the pitfalls that that surround every born-again believer, He reminds us how important it is that we maintain a proper relationship with the Word of God because left to our natural condition, left to our natural tendency, we won't just accidentally do the things that God calls us to do. In other words, no man has just accidentally acted like a Christian. The flesh won't let him. And you're not going to incidentally express a Christian testimony. You're going to have to do it deliberately and you're going to have to do it in direct contravention to the flesh. Your flesh will make sure that you won't naturally do anything that pleases God. You will only naturally do that which displeases God. We must supernaturally do that which pleases God. So we could summarize it this way. God's been awful good to us. So we ought to want to follow His Word. Uh, God has a purpose in our life. And to fulfill that purpose, we need to follow His Word. And given that we are broken and depraved individuals, we will not do it naturally in and of ourselves, and so we're going to have to follow His Word if we're going to do those first two things. We have another one of these wherefores in verse 21. And I want you to notice, I want to give you four thoughts tonight from the text of the Word of God, and then, then we'll be done very briefly. Verse 21, we have another wherefore. Wherefore? In light of all this, in light of these truths that we have have reviewed, wherefore lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. But be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. Now James is going to go on to develop a sort of metaphor. He's going to liken a man's interactions with the word of God to that of a person looking in a mirror. But before he ever gets there, he gives first in our text a word of command for our lives. And it is not something that is robed in simile or metaphor, but it is a direct and bold and imperative statement about what God expects of us. What should happen when we read the Word of God? Have you ever asked yourself that question? 
What should I expect out of my relationship with the Bible? If I take time and and read the Bible, and not just read it mindlessly, but if I carefully study it, if I carefully look at it, what should be the effect that is produced in my life? Because remember, we don't believe this is a natural book. We know it is a supernatural book. This is the very Word of God. This is a living book, right? This is not great expectations. This is not 20,000 leagues under the sea, all right? This is God's book. It is the inspired, inerrant, preserved Word of God. And it should produce something in your life. So what then is our responsibility to it? If we want to have a right relationship with the Word of God, what does that require? Well, notice what this command is. Number one, we are commanded to remove the engulfing wickedness in our life. He says, wherefore, lay apart all filthiness. Filthiness has to do with the corruption of the flesh. In other words, we have to actively make a conscious decision to set aside the ambitions and influence of the flesh in our life. It's not enough to read it in the energy of the natural man. We have to recognize that left unto ourselves, we will not rightly understand the Word of God. We must have the instruction and illumination of the author, the Spirit of God, as we read it. And in order for that to happen, that filthiness of the flesh, the wickedness that is natural to us, we must make a conscious effort to separate from that. Now again, I think you know me well enough, and in case you don't, let me leave no uh, rock unturned and no minds uh, wondering where my position is. I don't believe in the sinless state of perfection, this side of glory. I don't believe that we're ever going to eradicate the flesh. I don't believe we're ever going to get so devoted to God that we don't sin anymore. I, I think that uh, what First John said uh, still applies today. If any man say he hath no sin, he lies and does not the truth. But I do believe that if we're going to have a right attitude towards the Word of God and a right relationship, we have to see that as working hand in glove with a life of consecration. We have to recognize that how I live will affect how this book lives in me. He talks about the filthiness. And then he says in superfluity of naughtiness. Now that's interesting language. The word superfluity means an excess, right? Something if we say it's superfluous, we we mean it's unnecessary. It, It is redundant. It is overabundant. And then that word naughtiness is used there. It reflects moral misbehavior. And I think what James is speaking about here is that left unto ourself, our life will be an abundant graveyard of corruption and wickedness. We are literally surrounded, I'm talking about in and of ourselves, surrounded by the propensity, by the desire, by the leaning to do that which is wrong. Only when we recognize this, that it is not a matter of, well, how do I say this? It's not a matter of reforming what's good about us. It's about recognizing that in my flesh dwelleth no good thing and that I've got to have a supernatural injection of the truth of this word in my life that is apart from my natural condition if I want God to be glorified in my life. So in other words, we have to recognize that we're not okay. We're not all right. What we what we would naturally do is not appropriate and is not right, it's not pleasing to God. That must be addressed and dealt with. And then he sort of turns the other direction. He says, and receive with meekness. So he talked about some things to remove. But then he says, receive with meekness the engrafted word, which is able to save your soul. Let me just put it as bluntly and simply as I can. You can spend all the time that you want in this book, but if you're living a life in contradiction to this book, this book is not going to mean very much to you. I don't just mean if it means a lot to you, you'll get rid of those things. I mean, if you want it to mean a lot to you, 
you're going to have to get rid of those things. Now, maybe you'd say, well, preacher, you know, that's a chicken and an egg scenario. Which comes first? But I'd say this, that until we recognize that how we live, it, it affects what this book is to us, how precious it is to us, how meaningful it is to us, that when we let sin in our life, what was it the old preacher said? This book will either keep us from sin or sin will keep us from this book. We have to set aside uncleanness in our life. And then once we've done that, here's what we need to do, receive with meekness. Now what is that word meekness? Well, a lot of times in a spiritual sense, it means uh, strength under spiritual control. But in this context, it reflects the idea of a humility that begets a self-searching attitude. In other words, being willing to recognize that we need the truth of the Word of God. With, receive with meekness. And then I love this. This is a beautiful word. The engrafted word. That word engrafted, it means born into. Uh, it, it means woven into. It means having uh, become a part of something. In other words, the Word of God, it's not just about get us getting in this book, it's about this book getting in us. It becoming a part of our life by it being mingled with our worldview, with our uh, perspective, with our choices, such that when you were to look at our life, you would not see us, but rather you would see, as James has already said, an expression of the truth of this book. Then he says this, which is able to save your soul. Now, again, the word save in the Bible can have a lot of different meanings. The word save, it simply means to deliver. And very often when we read the word save or salvation in the Bible, we think of it in terms of personal soul salvation. The forgiving of a man's sins, the justifying of that man. We could use the term conversion. We could use the term new birth. In other words, when somebody gets born again, we think of them getting saved, right? But the word save does not always mean that. Uh, sometimes in the Bible, it reflects a different type of deliverance. And in James's exceedingly practical perspective, here's what he's saying. He's saying if, you're, if you want your life to be redeemed, not your soul in the sense of your spirit and standing before God, but if you want your life to be worthwhile, then you're going to have to have the Word of God as a part of it. It's able to save. And of course, the word soul uh, in a generic sense, the Word of God reflects a man's conscience. His personality, his awareness, his decision making, uh, that part of a man that we would recognize as a man. And if we want that to uh, be redeemed and to be valuable and to be uh, something that is pleasing unto God, then we need the word of God for it. So we have a command here to remove the engulfing wickedness, to get rid of the sin in our lives. And then to approach the Word of God recognizing that we need it desperately. To receive the engrafted Word. There's a Word of command here. And then notice verse 22, we have a Word of caution given. Now he's already told us what God expects of us. That we are to get sin out of our lives. We are to get in the truth the Word of God. Let it get in us. Study it sincerely. Study it meekly. Study it in a self-searching, self-examining way. But he says there is a danger. And he said, I've seen this in Christians' lives. He says, but be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. He gives in this uh, verse, verse 22, two different things that he warns against. The first thing he warns against is disregarding the Scriptures. It is possible, in fact, I would say not just probable, given the condition of mankind, given man's uh, natural disposition, it is probable that we allow our relationship with the Word of God to devolve into merely an academic pursuit. Such that we are exposed to the Word of God. We read it. It's preached to us. 
We probably even know truths about it and truths from it. But it really makes no meaningful difference in our life. Is it possible to be a student of the Bible without being a servant of the Bible? I was uh, in a bookstore yesterday, and I don't go to bookstores very often because, you know, technology. But uh, I was in a bookstore yesterday, and uh, I, I was going through and I was looking at all the different books, and I came across a commentary uh, on the book of Galatians. And uh, this commentary probably wouldn't have meant much of anything to most people that were standing there, but I recognize the name of the author. Uh, his initials are B.F. Westcott. Uh, if you don't know who that is, it's a man by the name of Brooke Foss Westcott. Uh, Westcott was one of the men that him and, and his uh, cohort, a cohort by the name of Fort Westcott and Wart were responsible for the creation of the Greek text that underlied the uh, revised version of the Bible in 1882. That would go on, of course, to become the revised standard version and, and really the basis of all modern perversions of the Word of God. Uh, the Nestle Allen Greek text, which is what most modern perversions are translated from, differs in less than 300 ways from the West Cottonwood Greek text. But it's interesting, if you study this man's life, uh, Brooke Foss Westcott was a theologian. He was a brilliant luminary mind. He wrote voluminous works expounding various portions of the Bible. And yet this is a man that never made, at least as far as we know, a public profession of saving faith in Jesus Christ. If you were to read the life and letters of West Cottonport, 600 and some odd pages of their personal correspondence, you would find passages that are worshipful of Mary. You would find passages that are jazzed about this new uh, latest concept that all the hip young kids were into called evolution. But what you would not find is one example of him talking about the day that Christ saved his soul. This is a man that it was a, an academic luminary. A brilliant man, humanly speaking, but here's the problem. He was a student of the Word of God, but he wasn't a servant of the Word of God. He had never believed unto obedience, as Paul spoke about in the book of Acts. Uh, he had never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And listen, if it could happen to him, and I know you're thinking, well, preach, you're talking about some old dusty old name. Somebody died a hundred years ago. That ain't got nothing to do with me. Well, let's just take it right now here into the present. We all know people in our life that could quote as much Bible as any preacher in any pulpit around that are living lives that are wretched and broken. They are hearers of the word. They're exposed to it. They could quote it to you. The only problem is they don't obey it. There's a word of caution given here. And then there is a word of caution about disregarding the Scriptures, but then about deceiving yourself. He says, deceiving your own selves. Here's the reality. When we are hearers of the Word, but not doers, there is only one person that that satisfies, and that is us. Now, of course, we could talk about other people's perspective on that in our life. And I'd just say this. We ain't tricking nobody. We're not deceiving anyone. Uh, people know whether we're living for God or whether we're not. And we can uh, say, well, I know as much Bible as you and I know atheists that would say that very thing. But at the end of the day, we're not deceiving anyone if we're living a life of sin, though we may be satisfied with it. But I really think in uh, the context of what James is talking about here, I think the person he is laying this in contrast to is not as much other people, but it's God himself. James, in other words, is saying, you may be satisfied with that, but God is not satisfied with that. And the great danger is, is not that we all have moments where we hear a truth from God's Word and do not respond to it. We all have moments where the Holy Ghost touches our heart and we have an opportunity and we could have moved, we could have 
could, could have made a move towards God, but we don't. We instead just sit back, we bide our time, we run out the clock, we go get in the car, and we go home. That happens to everyone. Here's the great danger in it. It's not that it's going to happen to you. It's that it's going to happen to you and you won't be bothered by it. That's what's dangerous. When we deceive our own selves, because here's the problem, we begin to believe that is a healthy relationship with the Word of God. We begin to believe that is standard operating status quo. That it is normal to view the Bible as an academic book. We we believe that it's okay to, to hear the preacher preach and hear what the Word of God says and know it deals with our life and never make a move towards God. It doesn't please God. It doesn't deceive God, but it sure deceives us. So we see here a word of command and a word of caution, but then... James gives this figure, this metaphor, this comparison here. we In verse 23 and 24, we have a word of comparison. He says, For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. Here in this comparison, he, he's describing a man that is passing by a looking glass, a mirror and looks in that mirror, and then turns and leaves, and does not make any effort to change anything that he has seen is incorrect. In this metaphor, we have two thoughts, and I want you to notice them. One, there's a word of comparison as to men's attitude towards God's Word. I began to think about this. Me and uh, and mirrors are not real close. I'll just be frank with you. I don't have to go into the details why. You've got eyeballs. You know why. Uh, I'm not a big mirror person. I look at them when I have to. <laughs> but uh, I began to think about a person's relationship with, with a mirror. Some people have very intimate relationships with mirrors. Uh, but other people like me don't. You know, you look at a mirror when you have to. And I, I thought about this. There's two reasons that men look at a mirror. And when I say men, I'm in that generically. Men, women, anybody. There's two reasons that a person looks in a mirror. They either look in it, one, to admire what they see. Or two is to adjust what they see. Why do you read the Bible? Do you read the Bible because you anticipate it telling you things that will make you feel better? Do you read it because you hope that it's going to give you things to bolster your self-confidence, to give you comfort in the face of suffering, and uh, to help you to feel like you have the, the personal magnanimity and, 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 and ability to face the obstacles of the day? Or do you read the Word of God to find out what God's opinion about things is? I'll tell you this, and I'm just going to say it real straight and move on. I'm going to say it and leave it there. A lot of modern Christianity is nothing more than people reading the Bible, looking for in it a message that will make themselves feel better. That's their only desire in doing it. You say, preacher, how do you know that? You can scan social media. You ought to do it sometime. You ought to to scan social media and just pay attention to what the content of most biblical or spiritual material is. I'm not against people posting things like that. It's a lot better than a lot of the vile stuff that's on social media. But I'm saying, oftentimes, it is greatly focused on the idea of God helping me be as great as I am, of God comforting me that I'm better than what I think I was. And it's all centered and focused around the idea of stroking ego and a bolstering of self-image. And the sad truth is, that's just a reflection of modern Christianity's attitude towards the Word of God at large, is that it exists to bolster my self-confidence. That's not what the Bible is here for. 
fact, the Bible tells us very clearly our problem, we don't have a self-confidence problem, at least not the way that we think we do. We don't have a problem with too little self-confidence. We have a problem with too much of it. The Bible says no man ever yet hated his own flesh. The problem is that we don't think, it is not that we don't think enough of ourselves. The real danger is that we think of ourselves above that which we are. Why do we read the Word of God? Is it to admire what we see? Well, there's another reason a person looks in a mirror. This is the right reason. It's because they anticipate there being some things wrong and ideally some things that can be fixed either by, you know, manipulation, medicine, or miracle. I don't know, you know. But you approach it because you you take for granted that there is either the possibility or the probability that there's something wrong that needs to be fixed. The real reason we ought to read the Word of God is not because we're looking for something to bolster our self-image. The real reason is because we're looking for something to expose our true image. I read the Word of God because I want to find out what I really am. And in finding out what I really am, I'm looking for the Holy Ghost of God to help me become what I ought to be and to be more in the image of Christ. What is our attitude towards the Word of God? And then... In respect to that, he gives a comparison as to men's apathy towards the Word of God. He says, For he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. Isn't it so funny how we can forget what we are? I once heard a man explain how that no person prior to the invention or the prevalence, I guess I should say, or proliferation of uh, of modern photographic advices ever got a true appreciation of his own image. Did you know that we, generally speaking, are not symmetrical creatures? Uh, If you were to divide your face, a picture of it, and and plot it out through a computer system, uh, each side of your face is not exactly the way that the other side is. Your eye might be a little bigger on one side, might droop a little bit, might raise a little bit. Your, your, Your chin, the corner of it, your mouth, your smile might curl a little bit than the other. And so it is very likely, for instance, when you look back through history and men, their only appreciation of their own image they could get was to look in a mirror, a looking glass, which inverts the image. They never looked at themselves the way that other men looked at them. It was impossible for them to do so. You know, in in our lives, very often, we can look in a mirror, we can see there's a problem, but as soon as we walk away from that mirror and we're no longer looking at ourselves, we forget about it. It's no longer important. It's not affecting us. That's why most of us don't have mirrors all over the houses. We'd accidentally look at them. Amen? And we prefer not to. Well, what about the Word of God? Could it be we don't spend as much time as we ought to in the Word of God because for the same reason we don't have a bunch of mirrors in the house? Because we know the more time we spend in it, the more we're going to be reminded of the areas of our life that need work on them. And if we're unwilling to do that work, it is an unpleasant and uncomfortable experience. Here's what a man does who's unwilling. A man that is a hearer but not a doer of the Word of God. He comes to church, he looks in the mirror, and then he turns around and goes home where he doesn't have to look anymore and never changes what was wrong in his life. The sad truth is that's that's many of us in our life. The Holy Ghost will deal with us about something and, and we've gotten real good at putting him off long enough for the invitation to close and us to get out the car and get the radio on or get headed to the restaurant where we can think about other things. We've gotten real good at only reading the portions of the Word of God that we know aren't going to bother us. Not reading the things that we know are going to ring our bell. And doing this whole little song and dance 
where we don't have to have a real sincere, honest relationship with this book that's transformative in our lives. He gives us a word of comparison. Finally, I'm done tonight. I, I like this. The word of God always ends with help. And this ends with help. He gives us a word of counsel in verse 25. He says, but. So in other words, this is what you could do, but this, this would be better for you. This is what you should do. Whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. One of the interesting things, if you study the Word of God, probably, very likely, the book of James was the first New Testament book ever written. It's possible the Gospel of Mark predated it, but it's certainly the book of James was one of the earliest books of the New Testament that was penned down. And James has been talking about the Word of God. But then here in verse 25, he calls it something different. He calls it the perfect law of liberty. Isn't that interesting? He can't be talking about two different books because to him there was only one book, right? He had the Old Testament and he speaks of it as the Word of God. But here he uses an interesting phrase to address the Old Testament. We would think of it as a law, but not as the law of liberty. Why does he do that? Well, he gives us some counsel, number one, about our perspective. What does the word liberty reflect in the word of God? Liberty reflects the idea of a believer being released from the gravitational pull of his depravity so that he can make true decisions that are legitimate and are free. That's what it means when the Bible says, if the Son makes you free, you're free indeed. You were already free to sin, but being free to sin is not being free at all. Right? That's like being free to pay taxes. Somebody say amen. But liberty is, now I have the choice. I could live in sin, but I now have the freedom and the liberty to choose to live for Christ. Now James is talking about the same book, but he now calls it the law of liberty. Why? Because he's recognizing what a proper perspective should be. You know what we should be when we come to this book? You know what our attitude should be? This is the book that tells me how I can break free of the sin and bondage in my life. I, I come to this book, hey listen, I don't come to this book like a mirror because I think I'm perfect and want it reconfirmed. I come to this book like a mirror because I believe that I'm disheveled, I'm broken, I'm disoriented, I'm corrupt. And only by being shown what I truly am can there be a change made in my life. In other words, our perspective should not be, this is the book that ties me down. It should be, this is the book that sets me free. It shouldn't be, this is... The book that hurts my feelings. It should be this is the book that helps my faith. It shouldn't be this is the book that offends me. It should be this is the book that releases me. Our perspective should be we approach it because in it is contained the power and the wisdom needed for our life to become that which pleases Christ. Not only about their perspective, but a word of counsel about their performance. He says, whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein. He being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. He says, so it's not just that you need to have a different attitude as you approach the word of God. Certainly you do. We need to approach it saying, this is what helps me and changes my life. This is not a book of rules to tie me down. It's a book of truth to set me free. But even that is not enough. Because even if we recognize that to be so, if we have a passing relationship with the Word of God, and if we don't look in this and gaze into it and stay fixed upon it and continue therein, then it cannot change our lives. 
I wish it was true. I wish I could just throw a Bible at you and it hits you in the head and you start living right. But I'm sorry that's not how it works. It'd make both of our lives a lot easier. But the truth is, it's only through continuing in it, through choosing to live a life of obedience, he being not a forgetful hearer. Why is he not a forgetful hearer? Because it's hard to forget your flaws when you live in a house of mirrors. It's not that this man that lives this way is more innately dedicated to it. It's that his persistent relationship with the Word of God keeps him accountable. And that's why it's so important that we stay consistent in the Word of God, giving opportunity for the Spirit of God to speak to our hearts. In other words, there's a word of counsel about their performance, but then I like this. There's a word of counsel here with a promise. He says, this man shall be blessed in his deed. Now again, people would try to take that and do with it what they've done to, you know, Philippians 4.13. You know, I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. And that doesn't mean sell essential oils or, you know, finally break that eight mile record that you've been going through or whatever it is. That relates to uh, living the Christian life. And here when it says this man should be blessed in his deed, it's not saying if you live this way, everything you touch will turn to gold. You'll be like Midas. Everything you go to do, oh, it'll be wonderful, it'll be glorious, rainbows, uh, you know, butterflies, unicorns, everything. No, what is the deed that the man is doing? Well, remember, he's a doer of what? He's a doer of the Word. In other words, as we commit ourselves to live a biblical life, that's the deed we are doing, we'll be blessed in this deed. God will enable us to get real victory in matters in our life, to make real progress. Often the Christian life feels sort of like pushing a big old rock up a hill. And the goal is very often just to push it far enough that when it rolls back, you've still made some progress. But I'll tell you this, we need to strive in our lives to make real progress and have real victory. I'm not saying you ain't going to have setbacks. We all have setbacks. But your goal ought to be, this time next year, I'm walking with God closer than I am now. This time next year, I'm living cleaner than I'm living now. This time next year, I'm witnessing more than I'm witnessing now. Making real progress, real forward movement and motion in our Christian life. If we will commit ourselves to the Word of God, then God will commit His energy and efforts to the development of our life and our character to please Him. But we've got to be willing to do what God asks of us. Not because in doing so we earn it, but because in doing so, we enable it. God wants to do this in our life. And there's nothing we could do that would earn it. But by being obedient, we enable God to perform this in our life. We ought to strive to be not just hearers. Man, there's all kinds of hearers. But I want to be a doer of the Word of God. Let's bow together tonight. The musician's going to come and play. And I want to give you an opportunity, if the Spirit of God dealt with you about something tonight, to not just turn away from that mirror and walk away. I want to give you an opportunity to come down and speak to the Lord. I want to give you an opportunity to come down and confess that thing to God and ask deliberately and explicitly God's help in whatever that is that God's dealt with you about. And I'll tell you this, if we'll resolve ourselves to do that, we'll move towards the Lord. If we'll be honest with Him, He'll give us the strength and help we need. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name.